going to plan this morning, kind of dive back uh, into one of the stories or the accounts that we looked at last week uh, into the uh, Peter uh, raising Dorcas from the dead. And just kind of look at a few things, kind of touched on it last week, but some things that, um, I don't know, they seem important to me this week, reading and looking at Acts chapter 10 and getting ready for our next chapter because we kind of finished it off. And this just kind of kept sticking with me. And uh, then last night as I was drifting off to sleep, I just uh, thought, man, I'm going to go back to this and and just kind of make a few points about it um, to encourage us. Uh, One of the, I think, the difficulties uh, of what we're going through right now with the, the kind of the COVID thing and you see the, the unrest in our nation and, and all the different um, concerns, you know, that we have going on right now. Uh, I, I was talking to Tam uh, last week and I think I mentioned this to a few people and I, I told Tam, I said, you know, I'm 44, so I don't, I haven't been on the earth too incredibly long, but I, I thought I, I told Tim, I said, this is the first time I've ever thought to myself, I'm not sure we can come back from this as a country uh, because of the division, because of the radical division. And, and I am no political analyst. I'm not super politically motivated or anything like that. But as I'm kind of reading and watching and looking at what's going on, you, the, the vibe I get, okay, this is just a James Aiken personal opinion, is that if our current president wins again, the country's going to burn. <laughs> and if... Uh, the other administration wins, I have concerns for uh, some of the laws I hold dear, and I don't know what's going to happen. And, and on top of that, you just see such a, a refusal for people to want to work together on so many different levels, uh, including the church level, unfortunately, right? The one, the one level where we should all be able to agree on some pretty central things, that Jesus is Lord, that we should love people, that we should be act with wisdom towards outsiders, that we should be uh, kind and excellent. Um, you know, in the, in, the, in the words of Bill and Ted, be excellent to one another. You know, that these, that these things are, that we should be at that point. And unfortunately, so often, and I'm not making any accusations about anybody, but so often you can witness, maybe in our own heart and other hearts, where that's not really happening. And, and the division gets worse and worse. And uh, I'm not saying this for the extent of like, hey, let's, let's save the nation, although that would be great. Save is in like a physical idea of having, because uh, this nation is great. Uh, but really on a spiritual level of how we can be those that bring healing and kindness and, and not unity in like the ecumenical sense of like unity around uh, things that we don't believe or something like that, but unity around Jesus and his loving kindness and his healing power and the forgiveness of sin that comes from the cross, all these things, that that could be our our primary goal uh, as the church, as people that trust Jesus. And one of the things that, you know, if you've noticed on your own or perhaps as we're going through uh, Acts, one of these things that seems to kind of be a theme through Acts is you see this radical unity, right? Now, Luke if you read his gospel and in the book of Acts, one of the things that's interesting about Luke as an author is he constantly puts things in the best light that he can. Uh, for example, you know, Luke doesn't talk about Peter sinking in the water. Luke doesn't, there's a lot of things that the Luke failures of people that Luke doesn't put in his gospels that some of the other writers do. And obviously it's all inspired. But Luke as a person seems to be this person who is very pro-brethren, pro-unity, pro-togetherness. So maybe there was disunity and there were false teachers and so forth that we don't read about. But what we do read about over and over again is just kind of this, from the very beginning, this uniform, right, where Jesus ascends into heaven. And then you have the the 120 that are kind of together in an upper room. They're praying. They're seeking the Lord together. Then the Holy Spirit falls on those and they, you know, you have the tongues of fire and the rushing wind and the, the sound of this rushing wind. It must have been immense because a huge portion of Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of people come running to where this, wherever this upper room was and they, they're, they're listening and Peter preaches this gospel and 3,000 people get saved. They, they hear the, the, this 
Holy Spirit-infused teaching from Peter, and, they, and they're, they, they're all in. Mostly Jews that we read about that have come for the day of Pentecost, come for a feast, right? And they're all in, and they believe in Jesus. And so all these people kind of want to stay in Jerusalem. So what happens? Well, they're unemployed and they're homeless. And so the church kind of bands together and people start selling land and selling money. Don't worry, that's not the, or selling money, but giving money and selling land, that's, that's not our application for the day. But there's this unified, like, as the church, like, hey, we want to help these people stay. And we want to help, you know, to be able to build something here. So they, they, they do that. It ends up costing them later on significantly. Because later on, Paul ends up taking up a collection at other churches to give to the brethren in Jerusalem because they become dirt poor and there's a famine and some other things that happen. And so the churches that are, and they end up being Greek-based churches or Roman-based churches, they end up giving money back to these Jewish believers that are having a hard time. But all through the, the, the book of Acts, there just seems to be this community this welcomeness, this love for one another. And again, we don't want to romanticize it because these people were just like us, right? They, they, it's not like, and sometimes you can kind of get this idea, like people talk, they, they talk about the early church and the church fathers and church history and their eyes kind of roll back into their head. It's kind of like this ecstasy, like this was the church as it always should have. No way. They had big problems. Remember, it's going to be like 20 or 30 years before even some of the apostles are like, eh, maybe we can leave Judaism behind. Like, these people had to work through tons of things. They had, you have Peter, we haven't read about him, who, who Paul has to, I mean, Peter, an apostle. Paul has to publicly call him out in front of the church and be like, dude, you are living legalistically. You won't eat with Gentiles. I mean, think about, can you imagine that? You're at church one day, and you're like, oh, the Apostle Peter's here. This is going to be great. Peter and Paul in the same place. The teaching's going to be unbelievable. And Paul stands up and is like, Peter, you've got to repent. I'd want to, like, fall into the wall. I mean, I, I would be like, okay, what do I do now? You know, like, what's going to happen? You know that anxiety you feel for other people sometimes? It's like, I'm like, that'd be like an 11. This is the early church. There is no church of Jesus Christ that's problemless. There's no church of Jesus Christ that, 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 that never had issues or didn't have to work through things. They've always been people that were sinners saved by grace that had to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that make sense? So as we kind of come into this uh, kind of wild time, as we kind of come into this, this time in the U.S., that who knows what it holds for us? Who knows what the U.S. is going to become? Who knows what the, what the world will become? I mean, we have no idea. Maybe you do. I have no idea. And I think like making predictions and trying to figure this stuff out, it can become overwhelming. It can become um, very fearful. Now, we are, the, the, like, I'm not a big beach fan. I've actually I've lived on the beach my whole life. I've never, I hate sand. I absolutely hate it. When I go to the beach, I wear Romeos and pants. I'm just like, just get away from me. Where's my chair? I'll sit here. But isn't it great to be out here? Because we have a little shelter, don't we? We have this, you know, we're like, okay, Portland's burning to the ground, but we're not. So that's nice. Not that they're burning to the ground, but it's nice that we're not. So there is a, a nice little kind of bubble that we have going on out here, but we can't count on that. And really, as Christians, the goal isn't to preserve the bubble. The goal is to reach people with the gospel, and one another. And one of the things I love about this account uh, with this Dorcas, and I have to admit, it kind of kills me to keep saying Dorcas just because I was an immature child. <laughs> and maybe still might be 13 at heart. But is <laughs> So we're just going to keep going with Tabitha. All right, we'll just, We're going to call her Tabitha. I don't know why that one's okay. But anyway, verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, and she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when, she had, excuse me, and when they had washed her, that is her corpse, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come down to us without delay. So Peter arose and went to them. And we'll stop there for today. Uh, I really just want to cover this first portion. And I mentioned it last week, so it, it's, it's fascinating to me that these people are, for the most part, all footbound, right? Perhaps one of them had a donkey. Maybe they had a cart. We don't know uh, what they could have pulled together uh, there. 
in, in Joppa. But what we do know is that Joppa is actually 13 miles from where Peter was at. So when it says there that they, they, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there. So the, the distance of 13 miles to me seems, it seems pretty substantial when you're on foot or riding a donkey. I've never actually rode a donkey, but I would venture to bet that it's not a super comfortable ride. It's not probably something, especially if it's like a buck 30 out and you're in the middle of the Middle East going down a, a bumpy or a, perhaps a Roman road that's there, which at best is cobblestone. But this, for some reason, this little, this little phrase has just stuck with me. Since Joppa was near Lydda, which in my account, not the Holy Spirit's account, but in my account, that's not near. I mean, how many of us, you know, if you're up in Surfside and you're like, oh, I got to go to the store, you're like, can we make do without teepee for another day? You know, like, do I really want to drive down to Sid's? Do I really want to go to Oki's, which is like four miles away? Right? We, in our minds, we're like, do I really want to go and handle this? Much less, and we, and we get in our car, and if, if you're like me, you're like, it's 63 out. I need the AC or I'll die. <laughs> right? <laughs> Ironically, I'm from California, and I still am like, is it really 63 again today? <laughs> How can this be? You know, if it's not 57 now. I'm like a sweaty mess. It's probably the physique, but I don't know. But so it's just, you know, it's, but it's, in my mind, that's so often, or somebody, somebody calls you with like the worst call you could ever get, I'm moving. And you're like, congratulations. I noticed what vehicle you have. Do you mean our trailer? Our travel trailer? Is that what you mean? No, your truck. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have a truck. No, oh, people don't hassle us that much. But you know, see, you know, like that's like the, and we're like, sure, sure, I'll help you move, because that's what friends do. I didn't realize we're friends, but you know, now, now I'm doing this, right? I'm, I'm helping you move. But have you, ever, have you ever had that thought before? Like, really, dude? It's Saturday. Why can't you move on a Wednesday when I'm working? Like, what? <laughs> Nobody moves on Wednesday, you notice that? But, so, but in our, so often for me personally, maybe you can identify, maybe you can't, and God bless you if you can't. But the, you know, that, that when somebody needs a hand and there can be this like, you know, come on. Or, like in this case, if I was one of the two guys, you know, the disciples are there, they're in Joppa, they're like, hey, we want to send you to Lida. it's on the coast, 13 miles away. Uh, we know Peter's there. So we're going to send you two. And I'd be like, well, who put this Congress together to decide that I'm going 13 miles. And, and do we really think Peter's going to raise her from the dead? Do we really think this is going to... Am I going to walk 26 miles in vain? So that... What, what if he says no? And then I'm at his house and I'm hungry and I have to leave. And then I get hangry and this whole... I mean, there's like a million you know, things that can come up in my own mind. And, and, and perhaps you've experienced that too. When God's people need us, and we're just like, this seems minimal or hopeless or a, a lot of work for, I think, a little return or all the different ways that we can, we can think about uh, ministering to each other. And, and I just admire the fact that the disciples take this wild risk. To me, it's a wild risk. Maybe the Lord had spoken to them and said, hey, go get Peter. He's going to read He's going to raise Tabitha from the dead. That could be, we don't read that. We just read that she's dead, and they realize, they think to themselves, hey, Peter's only 13 miles away. That's pretty close. Let's send some folks to go get him. 26-mile round trip. So in, the, in, in my own mind, as I work this out, I admire the risk and the dedication that these people take for this uh, person that's, that's dead, that needs help. Um, again, last week we mentioned... I think her resurrection was more for them than it was for her. You know, how many of us would see Jesus, die and see Jesus and be like, oh, my Lord and Savior, only to have him tell us, well, you have to go back in a few minutes. Peter's on his way. He's 13 miles away. They're walking three miles an hour, so you do the math. Hang out here for a while, get to know some people, say hello to Abraham, and, you know, back with you. You know, I don't know how, I wouldn't be super excited. So I think that you know, the resurrection clearly is for the people that are left behind, kind of like how memorials for the people that left, are left behind. When we remember our loved ones, we don't, we don't mourn because they're mourning. 
As believers, we, we mourn because we miss them, because we love them. They, they were a blessing to us and to our, to our assembly, or however it might be. And so that's what you have working out here. So, so this woman who has clearly served the brethren, everyone, tirelessly gets sent back to serve them more. So, you, you know, what you have in this, this little snippet of Tabitha and the brethren and the, and the two disciples that go to get Peter and Peter and all this traveling is this picture of service in the Christian life, this picture of God making an emphasis on, hey, Tabitha, your work is not done yet. There's more for you to do. There's more blessing for you to share for these people. And, and to be honest, for us, it's like, well, she made tunics. I mean, how many, I remember, <laughs> Grandma, if you're listening, I remember as a young boy being thankless and a chump. Okay, so that's where this is coming from. But remember when you would get, like, clothes you didn't want for Christmas? You're, like, ripping open a package, and you're like, is it G.I. Joe? It's a, it's a knitted set of mittens. And I live in San Diego. Like, hey, thanks. <laughs> I'll use these. Yeah, when I, I have to make a sandcastle. You know, it's, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like we, so for us, it can, might be like, ah, you know, she's making tunics. Like, is that, you know, can't she just go down, just go down to like Fred Meyer and get some Made in China t-shirts and call it good? So it might be like some difficult to understand, but she's, she, this is a huge blessing for people. In a time where most people had one, maybe two changes of clothes, maybe, she's cranking out a blessing for people. Work shirts and, you know, all the different, whatever they might be that, that, that they needed, tunics and different tunics is kind of like a long thing that goes down to your, your knees. But, you know, what, she's doing this huge blessing. So the interesting, what I'm trying to point out is, is, and I'm sure that in, you know, sewing with the other ladies or sewing in her house, I have no doubt, it's an inference, I have no doubt that, that people were coming by her place and she was ministering to them in other ways, maybe giving them scripture, you know, whatever it might be. But here's this person that, that ultimately, she, it's, it's not, she's not Peter. She's not raising the dead. It's not Paul. She's not making the perfect argument of what, uh, from the book of Romans, of how, of how uh, sin and death and accountability, and then the, the, the sacrifice of Christ, and the freedom in Christ, and all that. She's not making these huge doctrinal statements. She's not, you know, staying up for three hours preaching and teaching and, and forming the church and, and the doctrine of the church and doing all these things. She's not doing that. She's making tunics for people. And yet, you know what? Peter doesn't get raised from the dead when he dies. James doesn't get raised from the dead when he gets put in prison right away in, in church history. There's, there's Stephen, a man able to, whose face looked like an angel, able to argue with anyone and talk about the, the, how Christ was prophesied and came back uh, from the dead and his resurrection is the power unto God to salvation. He doesn't get raised from the dead. You have hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people that die, that, that had huge impact in the church doctrinally and you know, that we read today, but they never got resurrected from the dead. But Tabitha does. And, 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 and here she has this amazing service, this comforting service, this, this blessing service. And, and all we read about is that she's, she's encouraging people, she's making tunics. And so a couple things about that. Number one, there's, there's no gift that's too small. None of us possess a gift that God has given us that's, that's somehow inadequate or, or somehow is too small or too pathetic or isn't worth sharing or something like that. Each one of us in our, in our giftings and in our abilities, you know, we're, we're to be using them for God's kingdom. We're to be blessing them. We're to be those that, that go the extra mile. If someone says, well, hey, walk with me one, you walk with them two. All these different concepts that, that Jesus gave us as believers, as Christians, that we're to walk in. Oftentimes, I, I, I find that I don't... Um, I don't talk about uh, practical service a lot, at least I don't, I don't feel like I do. And a lot of that is because practical service is supposed to be kind of an outflow and a fruit from our life. And that doesn't mean that we don't serve, we don't feel like it, okay? So let me, let me just get that out there right now. That serving Jesus out of, a, a, out of uh, overabundance or out of uh, overflow from what he's done in our heart does not mean like, eh, I don't really feel like serving today, so yeah, I'm not going to. 
That's just called unfaithfulness. That's not like being genuine or something like that. But overall, we're called to minister and to contribute to each other because God has ministered and contributed to us. I oftentimes don't talk about the physical service of things because my concern is, and what I want to always avoid, is kind of creating some sort of dynamic where it's like, hey, it doesn't really matter where your heart is, just do stuff at the church and it'll be great. It won't be great. Because if we serve as people that are upset about serving, if we serve as people that aren't necessarily interested in Jesus and we want position, or if we serve as people that uh, are just feel obligated or something like that, it, you, you will bless people, right? You can serve coffee, and I'm not saying the ladies do. We have great kitchen staff here. But you can serve coffee uh, every morning with a big fake smile on your face, and you'll bless people, right, because you're giving them coffee. But if that's where you're ministering from, or I'm ministering from, or I could give teachings, you know, whatever, uh, every Sunday, but if I'm ministering from a place of like, well, this sucks. I'm so tired of this, but I'll do it because I have to. It's how I get paid. I better do it. Eventually, that's going to bear a fruit. That's going to come out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have an age. You might be blessed. And that's one of the ironies, as a side note here, one of the things you'd never expect is that how many of us have been blessed by teachings from someone, anyone really, in any venue, only find out that they've been in sin for like years? Right? Anybody? I, I have, personally. Probably many of us, right? Bob Caldwell, Bob Cole, I'm not trying to call those guys out, but you know, people that were very important to us. And then you come to find out that they've kind of led this life of sin. And if you kind of scratched your head like, how come I was so blessed by their ministry? How come it, I, because it's the word. Because it's still kindness. Even if someone hands you coffee with absolute bitterness in their heart, the Bible says it profits them nothing. It doesn't say it profits you nothing. So you, you, you know, you can be involved in service and people can be involved in service and it'd be an absolute blessing to you. We don't, we, we kind of like made up this thing in Christianity that if you don't have a right heart, that God doesn't use your ministry. And if that was really true, uh, if, 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 we had to be perfect to minister or no blessing would come of it, like there'd be no ministry. Jesus would have to come back. He'd be the only one that could do it. I'm not advertising for keeping sin in your heart. I'm just making the point that don't be surprised, as a side note, don't be surprised when someone that you love, you care about, fails. This isn't a prelim for me, just so you know. But it was just like, <laughs> and by the way, I have this letter. No, I, just, <laughs> I probably shouldn't even joke about that, but like I said, I'm 13. So the... But so we have this place that, that, that we, we, we don't want to minister from that place because it will turn out bad someday. We'll get angry. You're a minister from a place of just feeling like you had to. You, you end up angry. You, you blame other people. Even if somebody's just like, hey, could you babysit my kids? And you're like, yes. <laughs> I will. And then you do that a few times and you're like, it's their fault. It's their fault I'm mad because they asked me to do this. And we don't even go, I said yes. Or even deeper, I never asked myself why I'm so chapped about trying to help someone. So there needs to be, there has to be an internal reality in our hearts about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, who God's people are, and what he's called us to do. Those are, those are musts to be able to bear fruit in our own hearts and, and to have lasting fruit that's not going to end up in some sort of disappointment uh, in other people's hearts, right? So this is, the, the, the call to the Christian is to be like Tabitha, not to necessarily make temp, uh, uh, tunics, not necessarily to um, do what she did, per se, although maybe, I don't know what your giftings are, but it's, uh, and also the call is to be like the disciples, you kind of have three people, three groups here. You have Tabitha, you have the disciples that, that, that recognize this need that for some reason have in their minds she needs to come back. And then you have the two volunteers or voluntolds, whatever they were, that said, hey, you go and you walk 13 miles to go get Peter. And they said, okay, we're in. Each one of us has a calling from God to be part of serving his church. The, the, the un, I think maybe perhaps the best kept secret of church life, other than maybe prayer, is service. Because service is a radical antidote 
for so many venoms that we have. It's an antidote for depression. I'm not saying go off your meds or something like that. I'm not making any statement medically. I'm just saying that oftentimes when we're self-focused, self-absorbed, and concerned with all the things in our life, even sometimes if you're suffering from depression and you don't even know why, you can sit there and say to yourself, I don't know why, I'm just down, and we can feed into it. I'm not saying we all do that. I really want people to come out of here unoffended about talking about depression because I'm not trying to make accusations or anything. But we can kind of, we take in and we draw into ourselves and then we, we sit in our room sometimes depressed and we go to Netflix or bonbons or weed or whatever it might be and we try to then find relief from that depression. The crazy thing is that so often service is the only antidote we actually needed because what happens in service, it's, it's kind of miraculous. You go somewhere and you don't matter. You stop considering yourself. I stop considering myself. All of a sudden, all the junk that's going on in my head, especially the stuff that I don't even know why I'm sad about it, especially when there's a time that I don't even have anything to be sad about, if such a time exists, that when I come to church and I serve in the kitchen or I go to something else, not about just church, I have someone over to my house for coffee or I go do this or I do that or I help this person move, all of a sudden, I don't have time to think about me. All of a sudden, I, I can't focus on me and mine and, you know, my cable bill not being paid or, you know, whatever it might be. From the big to relatives dying to the small, you know, my cable doesn't work. You know, whatever it might be that can send us in. All of a sudden, I'm not thinking about myself anymore. And that is one of the most freeing places as a human being that you can ever go. It's, the, it's literally the life of Christ. It's literally what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4 when he makes the point. He says, the death of Jesus is in us so that the life of Jesus might be manifested. In other words, Jesus' death, his suffering and his death was not for himself, right? In other words, he didn't die for his own sin or because he had done something wrong. He died for us. So Paul says the way we serve as apostles, the way we serve you in Corinth, is that the death of Christ, in other words, we dying to ourselves and saying no to ourselves in exchange for serving and blessing you led to the life of Christ being manifest. He says, so then the death of Christ is is always born about in our bodies so that the life of Christ may always be born about in you. So part of the importance of the, the, the Christian experience is walking in, adopting, and finding places to serve. I'm not giving this teaching because like we have some sort of terrible lack and I'm PO'd. Or, you know, the, there's no heart like that. The heart is that we live right now, at least in my lifetime. I didn't go through Vietnam. I didn't go through Korea. I didn't go through World War II. I didn't go through World War I. I didn't go through the Depression. I've had a really easy life. Okay, so I'm not kind of trying to reference those things. But right now, for my lifetime, this is the most weird and divisive and, in a sense, alarming time that I have ever lived in. Because so, the James Aiken opinion is that the United States is not going to survive this. That's just, just my opinion. That things are going to dramatically change. Maybe for some of the good, maybe for some of the bad. And in the end as the anti-Christian sentiment grows, as Satan is the prince of the power of the air and he pushes farther and farther in our nation, again, no political statements here, just talking about what the Bible says about what's going to happen to the world, we will be all each other has. That's where we're going. Where you will be all that I have and Christ in you, and I will be what you have and together in all the different relationships that we have. And so for us as believers, it is the time, as the Scripture says, to awaken out of our slumber, out of our sleep, out of our, if you're like this, I'm not making any accusations, out of our lives that are self-absorbed, our lives that only care about us, and all the time that we think about, what about me? And what about my problems? And what about my stuff? And Jesus wants to address those through the power of the Holy Spirit. He does. And He will, as long as we continue to invite Him in. But to move away from me and mine, and to say, you know what? Light is not that far from Joppa. I can go help someone. I can take a risk on this. 
I could drive somewhere. I could go somewhere. I could volunteer somewhere. I could, I could help someone. I could sit on the phone with someone. I could go hold their hand with gloves, of course. You know, I could, you know, whatever my, I could do this. I can help people. It is literally the time. And over and over again, I understand that the, the scripture talks about, you know, that the days are closer. And, and 2,000 years ago, we have Paul and Peter and James saying, this is the last time. This is the end. And John, this is, it's, we're in the last days. It's happening. And I'm sure that every generation, this is something I've said many times, is always, I'm sure when World War II broke out and 55 million people died. I started reading, did you know, so 55 million people died in World War II, which is terrible and outstanding. Do you know that 70% of them were civilians? Yeah, and they died in the destruction of, of carpet bombing. They died in the destruction and, and that. And, and of that 70% of that 55 million, it was some outlandish, like 50% was from starvation and disease. And you think about World War II and all the soldiers that died in that, and, 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 and that was obviously tragic. But the fact that so many bystanders, so many people just trying to live their life, so many people just trying to go to school every day, just trying to, you know, just be normal people were slain by something. And I'm sure people then said, this has to be the end. There's no way that all these people could die on this scale. There's no way that all these, that this has to be the end. But it wasn't. And then you have Israel becoming a nation. And all these things that occurred and some of the prophecies that, that revolve around that. I'm not making any predictions because no man knows the time of the day. And I don't claim to know it, and I don't, I don't claim to know the season. I'm not going to get into blood moons, all that kind of stuff. But we're definitely closer today than we were yesterday. And as we see these things unfold, for my lifespan, in the, in the tiny bit of historical reading I've done, Christians have never been hated like this on a global scale. Even in Roman times where you had... In the, the scope of uh, about 100 years, you had 350 million Christians that were slain for their faith during the different um, uh, Caesars and so forth. It was always localized. You can actually look and see where it was, there was persecution here and Christians are booted out of Rome, but then there was safety here in Turkey. Well, then it arose here and they were booted here. But you're talking about on a global scale now where Christians are despised and hated simply because we love Jesus and we say there's a right and there's a wrong. And, and I meant for many of us, including myself, we, we don't want to be hated, we don't want to be those people, and we try really hard to be like, hey, there's, we're preaching forgiveness and love, but just by virtue of the fact that we say there's a need for forgiveness, there will be a vast amount of people that hate us. And that's okay. It's our job to be hated. It's what Jesus told us what would happen. We're not surprised by anything that occurs in the last day. And we're not victims, and we're not, we're not saying that. We're overcomers in Christ. One of my absolute favorite, favorite verses is there where Jesus is going on about the persecution. I'm not excited about persecution. I just want to say that out loud. I, I'm not like, yay, take my head. I'm going to be like, is the guillotine sharp? Can we, can we sharpen that before? Okay. That's really... But when you, when, is when Jesus says, look, here's how it's going to go down. Your kids are going to deliver you up. Your brothers and sisters are going to deliver you up for being a Christian. You're going to be hated, check it out, by all men for my namesake. There's not going to be any cool Christians in the end. They won't exist. You're going to be hated for my namesake. And he says they're going to imprison you. They're going to torture you. And they're going to kill you. And then his, the next thing out of his mouth is recorded in every gospel is this. But not a hair on your head shall perish. I love that perspective. I don't have it, but I love it. And I want it. I'm like, I feel like being tortured might ruin my hair. I don't, uh, you know. No, that, that's the eternal perspective that we have. That's how Jesus looks at it. And so really, this is the time for you and I to step forward and to say, I need to be done with my stuff. I need to stop playing with my, with my toys. Like, uh, Paul would say, when I was a child, I acted like a child. I, I, I thought like a child. I talked like a child. But he says, now that I'm a man, I've put away childish things. And I'm not talking about literal toys or something like that. I don't, you know, whatever. You want to 
put Legos together when you're 40. I don't care. That's up to you. But what I'm talking about is pursuits that God has said, don't do that anymore. The things that we adopt into our life where God says, it's not time for that anymore. There's a great passage that Peter wrote. If you want to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1, we kind of addresses a little bit of this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he's really, well, it says there in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles out of the dispersion. So he's writing to Christians that have been exiled. And he gives a list there of places that they've been exiled from, and, and, and it's, it's uh, extensive. But so he's, he's, he's writing to Christians that are scattered from the dispersion, meaning they're scattered around, that everything's not going well for them, that, that they don't know what's going on. And we, not, we may not be scattered yet because of persecution, and that may or may not happen in our lifetimes, but we're definitely getting scattered. We're, we're, we're through the, through the, you know, the, the coronavirus and all these things, all of a sudden, we can't meet like we did, we can't do the things that we did, we can't see the people that we did. On top of that, Again, not making political statements here, there is a legitimate, I hope we can all agree that there's a legitimate fear for people that have uh, lung issues and other, other medical issues. Hopefully we haven't gone so far out that we're like, ah, oh, this is absolutely nothing. So that, that can scatter people because we don't want people just to, to die from a virus. Right? So this, we're, we're being scattered and we're being pressured right now as Christians. So maybe not to the extent that they are, they're running for their lives. But the scattering is starting to happen. And so he's writing, he's talking about being born again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, uh, we have a living hope, meaning a, a, an expectation that is alive, that is working, that's, that's happening, that's doing it. Because of Jesus. So we are people, we've been dispersed or we're being dispersed. The pressure is being put onto us. And he's writing to other people who are being and going through hard, not being hard times, but are going through hard times. And he's saying, look, first and foremost, remember, you have a living hope. And not only that, but you, we need to bless God because of that. Praise God because of our living hope. Praise God that this place is not our home. Praise God that we're pilgrims and strangers here in this place. And we're just passing through. We praise God for that. And then he's going to go on. I'm, I'm not trying to read all of this because there's a lot here. It's very, uh, he, Peter was called the apostle to the Jews, and so a lot of this has very Jewish origins. Not that it doesn't apply to us, but he's going to quote Psalm 118. He's going to quote Isaiah multiple times. He's going to quote other Psalms and all of this. But what he's doing is he's talking about you're in persecution, you still have a living hope outside of this world, and you're still called to serve in the world. That's basically what Peter's talking about here. So I'd like to pick up in verse 20, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown, that is Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So referring to believers, verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So he makes this statement. He says, look, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So he's talking about, he says, you got saved. You have a hope. These things are going on in your life. Now as you obey the truth, as you obey what God has to say on every level, as you obey God, it purifies your soul, right? What does that mean? So right now you have kind of a dual nature, right? You have your old nature, the Bible says, that is the old, it calls the old man, uh, the old nature, the sinful nature, the flesh. Those are all synonyms for the same thing. It's that nature that we were born with, that was passed from Adam to us, that intrinsically when we were born, we were born sinners. Remember, we, we not, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. It's an important distinction. We do what we do because we act out who we are naturally. Okay, so you ever notice that you never have to teach a child to lie to you? You never like call them into the room when something bad has happened and said, okay, what I want you to do 
is tell me what didn't happen and pretend you didn't do it. Okay, go. Right? It just comes. It just comes out. You didn't have to teach them any of it. You ever had to teach, you know, anybody here remember the first time their two-year-old like took a swing at them? And you were like shocked, like, oh, my innocent baby. You know, how is this a thing? And then you were like, bring it. No, I'm just kidding. You didn't do that. But you know, <laughs> but you, know this, no, you, didn't, you didn't teach you that. Spanking does not teach your kid to hit. That's probably a different sermon. But lovingly discipline your child is not, does not teach your kid to try to assault you when you say no to a candy bar, right? You didn't have to teach your child to assault other children, did you? You didn't have to teach your child to try to assault you, did you? They got angry, and they, in their two-year-old body, felt you deserve to be hit for what you've done to me. And they took a swing. Think about that. Think about that a little child that, that doesn't understand so much of the world is at that point ready to exercise violence against the one that loves and protects and feeds them because they're sinners like us. The Bible says that foolishness is trapped in the heart of a child and the rod drives it from him. Again, we're not talking about winding up and wrecking your child with a, you know, a huge swing. But the Bible expressly talks about child training and spanking and what it can have. But the point is that from little tiny babies, we intrinsically have that nature in us. That's the old nature. But when we got saved and we believed in Jesus, something happened. We became spiritually alive. Somehow the Spirit of God attached himself to our souls. I don't know how that works. But somehow we became spiritually alive through Christ, and now there's some sort of bond between the Holy Spirit and our soul. And so what the battle in this life becomes is the battle for who will have my soul. Not my salvation. That's been settled. It's been given. It's a free gift. But how much of who I am, like the soul is the seat of emotion, like we talk about our hearts or something like that. The idea is the heart would be like the center of the soul. But the soul is my personality, what I'm like, and all this. And what's being changed as a Christian, hopefully, and maturing, is my soul. I am becoming conformed, and you are becoming conformed into the image of Christ through supernatural power. So what it comes down to for us is who are we going to let rule us and who are we going to let have our souls? Who are we going to let our soul become into? Are we going to fashion our soul into the image of Adam and all his sinfulness and ours and to the same? Or will we allow our soul by yielding, by obedience to what God has for us in our life, will we allow our soul to be changed and our very self reflect the image of the divine? It's pretty radical decisions, actually, to realize that every morning, that every decision ushers my soul, who I am as a person, to one, I don't want to say destiny because you will be changed, but to, to, to one form or another until Christ returns and I, I face him and everything I've insisted on in my own fallen nature is lovingly, mercifully ripped from me by fire. That's the decision I make today. And so Peter's saying, look, we have all this garbage going on in our, in our world right now. We have all this trash. You've been dispersed. You're on the ropes, as it were. This is a bad deal. But you have a living hope that goes beyond anything that this world can provide you. And you have an expectation of Christ moving in your heart. And as you obey Him, you become and you, uh, you change into His image. And he says there, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We love as we get to know God, and we love because he supernaturally changes our souls by the power of his spirit. And that what he changes us into is that is of is love. And when he says sincere brotherly love, and then love one another as earnestly from a pure heart, he's talking about affection and he's talking about moral love. Not just like feeling bubbly oh, it's so great to see you today. Hey, that's wonderful. But the idea of agape love in the Scriptures is this. It's a moral desire, an absolute moral desire for the better of the person. 
So if I say, I agape love you, what I'm saying is, I want the absolute best that God has for you, and I will do and make decisions in my life to make sure that that happens. So the interesting thing is we don't normally have that, right? We just talked about little babies, and they don't grow up with agape love, do they? They don't say, Mom, Dad, I just want the best that God has for you, so I'm going to go clean my room. God bless you. No, they don't do that. They say, mine, mine, gimme, gimme. Where's my dessert? Where's this? Where's that? Now, hopefully, with proper training and love and care, that's what we're doing, right? We're helping our children say no to themselves. That's what child discipline is, helping your child say no to itself. And so what, we're, what God is doing for us, because you grow up and all of a sudden you don't have to say no to yourself anymore if you don't want to. Well, I mean, I guess eventually if you like end up in prison, then other people are still saying no for you. So Jesus is molding our soul so that we can say no to ourselves. But when we say no to ourselves, we're saying no to that Adamic sinful nature. And we're saying yes to the best possible thing that could ever happen to us. God's will. Whatever that, however that will manifests itself. If it's a kind word, it's, if it's giving, if it's helping, whatever it might be. So the transformation that's occurring, it's not just that we're working harder as we yield to God in our lives on every level, and, and I understand that there, that there is uh, conflict in our lives, that we say yes, we say no, we say yes, we say no. It's a battle, right? But as we say yes to God, He's actually forming Jesus in us, and we are going to be able and willing to love morally and build up God's kingdom. It really is God's work and not ours. It really is God doing something in us supernatural and then that flowing out of us. It really is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working through us. Does that make sense? So all of a sudden when you see believers like, no, really, it's not me, it's the Lord. They're telling the truth. Because if we all act like we wanted to act, especially when we were younger and more immature, it would be a disaster, an absolute disaster. So what God's called us to do is instead listen to him, obey what he has to say, and then experience this supernatural change. And let me, let me just throw this out there. Which is more peaceful and encouraging? Loving people or hating people? Caring or despising? It's obviously it's caring. But the hard part is caring is a choice. And it's a choice that forces us to say no to ourselves a lot of times to be able to walk in an actual physical ministry that God has called us to. So he's going to go on. We've purified our, he says there, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the idea is deal with stuff in your heart. Don't love with a divided heart or a tarnished heart. Since you have been born again, not of uh, perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And we're not going to cover all this because this would be probably a few weeks sermons in itself. But if you'd like, I encourage you to go back and kind of study it for yourself. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the, the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Whatever God is doing in your heart, that will remain. Anything outside of that that's of ourselves, of our, our old nature, it will uh, it'll wither, and it'll die. And this, is the, uh, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. If there was ever a time in history for this verse to apply to our world, it's now. Put away all malice. Doing things with evil motives, basically is what malice is. Don't do stuff from evil motives. When you recognize your motive as evil, just repent of that. Repent of it. What is repentance? What does that mean? It means you turn from it. You call a spade a spade. You say, you know what? That is my wicked heart that wants me to do this. That's malice. And I'm not going to allow that. This, this is yours, Lord. I, I, I surrender this to you. Forgive me. Because that's the intent of my fallen heart. But I want to walk in this new man created in Christ. I want to walk in the new nature. And I'm not going to give that a place. That's literally what repentance is. It's just a confession to God. I need you. And he says... Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation 
If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know, how do newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk? Wah! Right? They scream. You know, newborn infants, they're not like... No, they scream. And they scream until what? They get it. Or they, get, they just turn red and then pass out. I've only heard that happens. I don't, I don't know. But that's what newborn babies do. They scream for it. So it's interesting that Paul, this isn't like some tranquil example. It's not like you read this like, oh, you should long for the milk like newborn babes. Oh, they're all swaddled and cutie. And, oh, they just, I bet they want milk. No. They, when they want milk, they scream for it. And he says, we should be people that yearn for the word that way. Why? Because it's the way we're changed. The Word of God and the Spirit of God in one another and as we minister to each other, it's how we're changed. We're told that the Word washes our hearts. We're told that it changes our mind. We're told that it, it renews our spirits. We're told that it, it cleanses our souls. So if you're unhappy with your life today, if you're in a place of anger and bitterness and malice and hypocrisy and envy and we're slandering people, the answer isn't just trying not to because from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. If you're slandering people left and right, if you're just super able to just slam someone publicly or privately, then guess what? It's not your mouth's problem. It's not my mouth's problem. It's not my brain's problem. It's my soul's problem. It's who I am. And that's really good news because we can deal with that, right? We have a recipe right here, the Word of God, ministering to each other, obeying when God calls us to do something. It will literally change who we are. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, him being rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and through Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on. But we have this calling, and our calling is to be built together. Our calling is not individual. Our calling is not to do our own thing and, and you know, kind of be the Lone Ranger Christian or something like that. That's not what we're called to do. It doesn't mean you have to be with people 24-7. It doesn't mean you don't get any alone time or you don't have hobbies. What it means is that if you want to be, as a believer in Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus, it means that he has called you to be part of something magnificent and huge, and he likens it to a living stones into a spiritual house. And the crazy things about stones is that they have to get chipped before they can be put together, right? Nobody, I've never, I mean, every once in a while you'll see kind of a wall, but a wall where no stone has been chipped is what? Massive amounts of mortar, right? Because you have to get, there has to, no. When stones get put together, when you look like a brick and mortar house and so forth, those are shaped stones, aren't they? Stuff's had to be knocked off. If you tried to make a house out of a bunch of stones where everything was, was just cattywampus and angles were wrong and all that, you'd end up with a really funky house that probably wouldn't work that well. It'd be 90% mortar. So a, a house built with stones, it takes shaping. It takes difficulty. It takes work in our lives so that we can fit together and be built into something wonderful. The more that we resist God molding and shaping and conforming us into the image of His Son, the less we are available and usable and will be a blessing to his kingdom. And, and we might think that that's okay and that's what we really want, to just do what I want to do and, and, and indulge in my flesh. But the reality of the situation is that sin always leads to death. Maybe not physical death, except for one day. It always leads to rottenness of soul. Sin always does. It can feel so good to tell someone off in the moment, but what does it yield afterwards? Guilt and shame. That's why we have to go on Facebook and say, I just told this to the barista. Ha, ha, ha. Because we need everybody else to affirm us that we were right. We need, can you please affirm me and make me feel right about what I know I shouldn't have done and I feel guilty about now? Oh, sweet. 99 likes. I was right to scream someone down. That's how our whole society works right now. Please affirm my destructive behavior. Please affirm me destroying my soul. And so often, because we can identify with it, we're just like, yeah, like. And we're not doing anybody any favors. We're called to be kind. We're called to love. We're called to be ambassadors for his kingdom. Things that might seem far off or difficult or heinous, but they're actually the very things that give us life. Serving God 
forgetting about myself. He's going to kind of culminate in, in chapter uh, 2 and 3. He talks about our relationship in marriage. He talks about our relationship with the government. He talks about different things. But in 4, and we'll end here with chapter 4, he makes another summary. He says, since Christ, therefore, excuse me, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Just what we talked about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. The death of Christ is in me so that the life of Christ might be manifested. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, whoever in their own body has said no to the flesh, that person is not sinning. That, that, that causes a cessation of sin in a life. He's not saying that, hey, if you somehow get mocked for your faith, then you will never sin again. He's saying as we reject the flesh's influence, as we reject Satan and the world and their influence into our hearts and into our lives, we begin to cease from sin because we're walking in that new man in Christ. But we go on. He says there, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What a profound statement. Apparently the Holy Spirit's really smart. He says here, you know what? We, the time in the past, that's been enough for sin. That's been enough for lust. You know, we've kind of worked it up. We, we've had enough. We don't need any more. You ever felt like you need to sin? You ever been so tempted, you feel like, I have to do this. I have to say this. I have to look at this. I have to smoke this. I have to drink this. Whatever it might be. And you just feel like it's like pounding in your soul that you have to do it. And Peter comes along and says, eh, we've done it. It's been enough. The bad attitudes, all that stuff, it's been enough. It's time to move on. This is for the, same, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Isn't that the case? And only in our society now, it's not just surprise, it's offense. And you come along like, uh, no thanks, I'm not, I'm not super into that. You ever been mocked for that, like been at, been at work or something, and your coworkers are like, hey, we're going we're gonna to go out to a bar, you know, do you want to go? And you're like, ah, it's not really my thing. Look, I'm not making a rule you can't go to bars, so please don't think that. But in your own heart, you go, ah, you know what, drinking's not for me, I'm not going to do that. No, that's okay. And they're like, well, why not? And you're just like, I just don't want to go. It's not really my thing. Oh, is it because you go to church? <laughs> no, it's because I love Jesus. <laughs> you know? They don't, they, nobody's going to understand. The world is never going to come along and go, hey, James, I'm so glad you're walking with the Lord. I'm so glad that your testimony is, of your life is how wicked mine is. I really enjoy this. I'm 100% in. <laughs> no one will ever say that to you. I really want to be around you because you just remind me of all the ways I rebel against God. This is great. It makes me drink more. <laughs> Nobody's, it will never happen. The world's never going to appreciate for your love for Jesus. It will only appreciate if it somehow twists it and says, well, I'm just so glad you're so kind and you don't bother anybody. And you're like, okay, that's kind of part of the gig, but there's more to it. So like Peter makes it clear, he says, don't be surprised. They're not going to uh, appreciate it. They're not going to jump into it when you, join, you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They make fun of you. They speak evil of you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I don't necessarily think that we rejoice in the judgment of others, but the Holy Spirit gives it to a comfort to you. No one's going to get away with anything. No one will. There's not going to be one scandal that was buried in the world that won't get brought up. There's not going to be one intentional hurt that was suppressed and lied about and held on to that won't get addressed. Not one. The, script, the Psalms say that when, when God judges the earth, he says he'll judge with equity. You know, that what is due will be given. So you can take comfort that we serve a heavenly, all-powerful God. And let's pray for those that hate us. Let's pray for those that despitefully use us. Let's pray that they would find the Lord. Because we, wanna, we, we do want to love them. Jesus loves them. But those who continue to step over the body of Christ to continue to hell, they're going to get judged. 
Because Jesus, he paid it all. There will not be one person who stands before the Lord and says, I didn't know. I would have received you. Not one. Because he's just. Verse 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is kind of, a, a, I think, a life verse for me. I absolutely love this. Above all, I just love it when there's, when there's absolutes. I love absolutes. Maybe I'm a Sith. I don't know. But I love absolutes. Above all. Above all. He just said, hey, make sure that you're self-controlled and you're sober-minded so you can pray. And then the next verse says, above that, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We have one job, one, to love one another. It's like, remember when you were a kid in class? Because I was kind of a wild kid. And I remember a couple of classrooms, the teachers, they go, I have one rule. And you're thinking to yourself, yes. What is this one rule? Gum? Talking? What is this one rule? And the, 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 the rule is always, you can't interfere with anybody else's learning. And you're like, that is all-encompassing. It's a robbery. It's a lie. There's many rules. You just focus them in one. This is like the opposite of that, but for the positive. We have one, one job, and it's to love each other. And when we love each other, we'll still make mistakes. We'll still have to deal with our flesh. But when I'm loving you and you're loving me, guess what? I'm going to forgive you. You're going to forgive me. We're going to continue to relate to one another in a way that, that glorifies Christ. We're going to work through problems. We're not going to have schisms in the church. We're not going to separate and make sure we don't get coffee when that person is getting coffee. We're going to, not going to call and say, is that person coming to the fellowship? Oh, they are? Okay, yeah, well, I've got to wash my shoes tonight. Sorry. All of a sudden, when we're ministering to one another, if things are being worked out. We're giving it to the Lord, and the Lord's growing us. And he's doing great things. And he says, look, this is the one thing you have. In our, in our separated, crazy, broken world that we live in right now, our job is not to make sure that one candidate or another gets really elected. Our job is not to make sure that one, one you know, constitutional amendment or another doesn't get infringed. Those are side jobs. Those are, those are things we can just do on the side. They're like hobbies. But our job is that we earnestly love each other and we earnestly look after the world with the gospel and the power of it. That we earnestly deal with our own hearts and that we earnestly listen to God and, and, and repent when he calls us to. And Peter says, man, when we do that, and notice I didn't mention it, but verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> It's the end. And this is what we need to do in the end. He's going to go on there. We'll read this and then we'll be done. He says, as each has received, oh, excuse me, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And he's going to go on and describe it. You and I are called to serve each other as believers. We're called to repent and to obey God and experience radical spiritual change the kind of change in our lives that is going to bring about a joy in those around us, change in those around us and in ourselves. And the great thing is it's so simple. When I do something, when I think something, when I say something that doesn't express the moral love of God for the betterment of someone else, I repent on the spot. It doesn't mean I don't tell the truth in love. It doesn't mean if somebody's destroying their life, I don't come along and say, hey, man, I love you, but you kind of got this thing going, and that's, this is where it's going to lead, and the Bible says don't do that, and this is why it says don't do that. Let me help you not to be involved with that anymore. We're not saying that, but we can just put away all the malice, all the slander, all the anger, and lay it all aside. And he says when we do that, the power of God it comes flowing out of us. Jesus said in John 7 that whoever believes on him, that out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this is what he spoke of the Spirit which would indwell them that believed on him. 
So if you're here today and your life, you, you, if I said, hey, what's your life like? And you said, and you, and you can't say or I can't say, it's like I have a beam of living water just <laughs> on everyone all the time. That can change because it comes from the Holy Spirit. You merely need to repent and ask the Holy Spirit into your life. Or maybe you have nothing to repent of legitimately, and you just, we just want to cry out to God together for a filling of a fresh filling of His Holy Spirit in our lives. We can do that. If you don't know Jesus today, and the whole thing about joy and peace and being changed, it sounds amazing, but you think to yourself, that could never really work. That's how I got saved. I remember a guy coming to me, telling me his testimony, giving me the gospel, and I was like, eh, no thanks. And he was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that sounds amazing, but I know me. And I've tried to be a different me for like 16 years. You know, I, I, was, I saw my first porn when I was 10 years old. Because I went over to my friend's house. I had no idea. And he's like, hey, you want to see what my parents saw last night? I was like, sure. I was thinking like Rambo, something I wasn't allowed to see. And he's like, check this out. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I've never seen that before, but I like it. I don't know anything about it. You know, I, I remember just having an absolute potty mouth in fourth grade. I remember just raging, being 14, 15, 16 years old, and just absolutely full of rage, over-sexualized, just craziness. And so this guy comes and he says, do you want to receive Jesus? And I was like, to be honest, I was like, hell no. Because there's no way I'm going to tell God I'll be different. I've always been the same. I've always been full of rage. I've always tried to, to clean up my mouth. I've always tried to be something that I'm not, and I'm not. So there's no way that I'm going to say, okay, God, here's your good boy. Let's do this. There's no way. And what he said to me, he goes, hey, check it out. He goes, you don't really understand the gospel. Because the gospel isn't, hey, God, I'm going to be a good boy. The gospel is I receive what Jesus did for me for the forgiveness of my sins, and I want that cleansing. And he changes us. So if you don't know Jesus in your life, if you've never received him, receive him. Cry out to him. It's not fancy. It's merely just, I'm inviting you to your life. I need the forgiveness that you bought for me at Calvary so I can have fellowship and change because of what you did. And you can do it right there in your seat. You can come up afterwards for prayer. And if you want a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit in your life, same, same story. You can ask for it in your chair. You can come up for prayer afterwards. But God wants to do a great work in your life. He really does. And he's got great things for you. So don't delay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness and your great mercy. Lord, thank you for the opportunity today to read your word. Thank you for examples like Tabitha, the disciples, and two dudes willing to walk 26 miles. Thank you for Peter willing to, to take a chance and come raise the dead. Lord, we just confess to you right now that we're broken and we're fearful, and we live in a crazy time, and we don't know what to do with it. And Lord, we just want to invite the power of your Holy Spirit into our lives. We want to confess to you. We haven't done it all right, but we're yours now, and we yield to you. We yield you our lives. Lord, would you take our lives from us? Would you make something beautiful out of it? Lord, would you take our legalism and our pride? Would you take our gross sin and our lusts? Would you take all the anger and the anguish? And Lord, would you wash us clean? Lord, would you do a great work in us? Lord, help us to be effective for your kingdom, to be those that can shed abroad the love of God through the Holy Spirit and those that are willing to go to Joppa and pick up Peter, those that are willing to lay down our own lives for the sake of others. Lord, may we, may we truly abide in you and allow the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus might also be manifest. Lord, I pray today for those that are wrestling with receiving you. I pray that you pour out your spirit upon them and draw them to yourself. I pray that decisions will be made for you today. Lord, we thank you for being so kind to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Thanks for your patience and our long sermons. Have a good weekend.